there's also a positive and negative aspect to the great father. The positive aspect is order. A society that is relatively free of, for lack of a better term, chaos, where you can, you can know what to expect day to day. That's the positive aspect of order. That's, uh, dare to say it, it's the patriarchy, uh, uh -huh. quite literally. Uh -huh. But the flip side is also the patriarchy. It's yes. tyranny. Yep. It's where order goes too far. It's where you have state overreach. Hey everybody, welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money Show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first, which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. These first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor and thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard hands down, and that it was instrumental to their understanding of money and Bitcoin. So if you're looking to start uh, a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. The What Is Money show is 100% sponsor-based. So all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them, as again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Today's podcast is brought to you by N. Wolf's Clothing. Wolf is the first startup accelerator dedicated exclusively to the Bitcoin Lightning Network. Four times per year, Wolf brings teams from around the world to New York City to work with like-minded entrepreneurs, pushing the boundaries of what's possible with Bitcoin and Lightning. The program is designed to help early-stage companies achieve product market fit, develop their brand, secure early-stage funding, and grow businesses that help fuel the global adoption of Bitcoin. So go to wolfnyc.com to learn more about the program or apply. Again, that's WolfNYC, W-O-L-F-N-Y-C.com. Luke, welcome back to the What Is Money Show. Thanks, Albert. Great to be here. So we're going to be continuing our journey into Jordan Peterson's book, Maps of Meaning. Um, and this time we're going to be getting into really looking at myth and its relationship to action. And this is a very interesting place where I think Peterson's sort of talking about praxeology without knowing he's talking about praxeology. <clears throat> and so in one, in one perspective, you could connect mythology to praxeology. It's almost like a, a proto-praxeology, something like that. And then in the other aspect, you could look at look through the lens of praxeology itself and say that it's examining... Um, mythological structure in some way like that we actually are describing i guess we're describing the complex system that we're all inhabiting right this this forum for action where we all have purposes right we're all using means to pursue ends 
sometimes we come to cross purposes with one another and we have to resolve those conflicts and these the myths or the accumulation of lessons or possibilities maybe uh, that we've gathered over time as a result of that examination that self-reflection I guess might be a better term so uh, with that I'm going to but I guess I should mention we're going to be examining a couple of creation myths today the, That's the, the Mesopotamian creation myth and what is the other one part of the Egyptian creation myth one of their good yeah. When I say today, maybe not today, but that's what's coming next. So we're going to start talking about like the structure uh, in common between these myths, how it pertains to action, and then we'll describe some of the specific uh, mythologies themselves. So with that, I will open with an excerpt from page 89 in Jordan's book, Maps of Meaning, where he writes, quote, myth represents the world as a forum for action. The world as forum for action comprises three eternally extant constituent elements of experience and a fourth that precedes them. The unknown, the knower, and the known make up the world as a place of drama. The indeterminate pre-cosmogonic chaos preceding their emergence serves as the ultimate source of all things, including the three constituent elements of experience. So these three things, the unknown, which he later will call unexplored territory, the known, which is explored territory, and the knower, which is the process of exploration itself, or the act of exploration, we might say. And then there's the pre-cosmogonic chaos which I, I would call, I guess, the unexplorable ultimate reality. Like, no matter how you map reality, something always slips between the cracks. Any, you know, no map can contain the full territory, let's say. So it, there's something beyond the unknown. It's like something that maybe knowledge itself cannot contain. Uh, this might be the domain that is pointed to by things like poetry and art. Um, you know, the things that cannot be said, uh, how have I heard it put? Like, how, how can you describe what a, a majestic sunset really looks like, right? You can't really capture it in words. It's just, there's something that's always beyond the, the mapping process of, of language or story. And this also brought up for me, um, the, the, there's a Netflix series called The Power of Myth where Joseph Campbell is interviewed for six consecutive episodes by Bill Maurer, I think is his last name, I forget. Anyways, in an episode, I think this is in episode six, I could be wrong, but Joseph Campbell describes the, uh, the primordial sound OM, A-U-M, and he says that this one sound basically contains all the vowels of language. Like if you fully pronounce it, ow, like your mouth is open, closed. And so it has all the vowels in it. And consonants in language are basically inflections of that sound. And so basically in this one sound, you can have the the kernel for all of language. And he's And he also broke that down into... They called this the four-part something. And the question is like, what do you mean four parts? It's just A-U-M. It's A-O-M. 
And he said, well, we've got the A, U, M are the first three parts. And then the fourth part is the silence from which it emerges and to which it returns. And so that reminded me of this kind of relationship between the unknown, the known, the knower, and then the pre-cosmogonic chaos. And um, I would pause there and maybe just get any thoughts from you. But then um, where I wanted to go next was this idea of pre-cosmogonic chaos or the silence from which AUM emerges into which it returns. This is the domain of wisdom as well, right? There's like wisdom is silent. It's something that's beyond words. Um, so yeah, just maybe I could get your thoughts there and then uh, I could pr- provide some more comments. No, it's great. This is one of the key points that I think is so difficult to understand here. There's sort of two types of unknown, so to say. There's two types of this this mythological representation and there's a there's a whole section here dedicated to explaining what is the difference between this unknown which we're going to get into the sort of character representations of this since we're getting into the myth chapter mm-hmm. and we we might as well somewhat start here that that the unknown which is not this pre-cosmoconic chaos is is associated with the feminine and the the character is called the great mother but the pre-cosmogonic chaos, that is the Ouroboros, if you've heard that term, the the dragon of chaos. It's represented as a dragon mythologically across cultures. The, this and, is the, that eats its own tail, right? The Ouroboros. Yes, yeah. yes exactly. It, it eats its own tail. And there's just one example in here that I, I really like that, and this is, this is from the Tao, uh, from Lao Tzu. Um, that which is nameless is the origin of heaven and earth. That which has a name is the mother of the 10,000 beings. And just to break that down slightly, the difference here is between the unknowable unknown, as you say, that which everything stems from and the type of unknown that has potential you have the potential to know what's coming out of this unknown. It's the potential for creation and destruction. And we can formulate it. We can have a conception in our mind of what that is. And this is associated with femininity symbologically. And this is easily one of the most controversial things uh, from Dr. Peterson's work. But it's it's there in the mythology. The point about this entire chapter that we're going to cover here is that none of this stuff is some kind of prescriptive thing that someone is deciding here consciously. This is this is all deep stuff from thousands of years. And the reason put forward here mostly, uh, the, the unknown appears to be generally conceptualized or symbol- symbolically represented as female, primarily because of the female genitalia. Hidden, private, unexplored, productive. And they serve as a gateway or portal to the divine unknown world or source of creation. So we're getting into, again, kind of deep reasons here, but women have kids. And this difference in and of itself is what makes them a stand-in for... um, the conceptual unknown and there's a whole section here 
that goes into how two things become equated with one another if they are similar in some way. They don't have to be exactly the same, but but again, this is before the subjective age, scientific age. So the um, the planet Mars was associated with blood because of its red color and therefore warfare and therefore et cetera, et cetera. The mandrake root was associated with the human form because it was shaped like a person. These are the examples here. And so therefore, again, this is difficult, but the, the female is associated with the form of the unknown that can create and destroy. Mm-hmm. So that's in contrast to the unknown that is unknowable, mm-hmm. where everything else stems from. This is the world before the Big Bang. Mm-hmm. This is the Ginung Gagap is what the Norse called it, the the uh, space between spaces. Uh. So lots of ways to conceptualize it, but pulling this right back in, these are the four building blocks, basically. Of yes. it. And then we get everything else that comes from it, out of it. But the, the distinction between these two types of unknown is difficult, but important. Yes. Space between spaces. I've never heard that one. And that's perfect, actually, because again, if I'm looking at this as, so you can't contain the, the unknowable, right? The, the pre-cosmogonic chaos, you can't contain that in knowledge. That's sort of the, you can't explore it. It cannot become explored territory. So when you say, this is what, this is what I think wisdom is dealing with actually, like wisdom is what the word we use for how we deal with this irresolvable uncertainty. Um, again, if, if, what did uh, Socrates say? The beginning of wisdom is the definition of terms, right? That you're to understand that we're trying to assign meaning to these tools called words. But the ultimate meaning will always be between the words, right? There's, there's, a, it's always, there's always a greater context to be considered. Um, there's also the idea in the Bible that the beginning of wisdom, the fear, what is it? Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, something like that. But when you look at the word fear, it actually could be translated also as reverence or awe. And the word God or Lord typically refers to something ineffable, right? It's like the word for that, which is beyond words. So it's to have reverence for that, which exists beyond words is the beginning of wisdom. And it closely parallels what Socrates said, right? The, the beginning of wisdom is the definition of terms. And so again, wisdom is silent, right? Because it cannot be, you can't speak about this pre-cosmogonic, I mean, we can, we're doing it, but it's never going to contain the essence of the thing. And that's different than just unexplored territory, right? Something that we haven't mapped yet. Um, I thought, uh, and Peterson mentioned this in his work too, that uh, Rumsfeld, I think this was in the 90s, he sort of hit on a, he struck a chord with people when he mentioned the difference between known unknowns and unknown unknowns. And I think it's because he was invoking this mythological theme, actually. In business, we know this too. A known unknown is something that is measurable and manageable, right? It's risk, right? We know how much capital we put at risk. That's your potential downside. You can measure and manage that. 
But there are unknown unknowns about reality, which is just the irreducible uncertainty of the future. You just can't measure or manage the horizon of the future, right? There's, what do we say? Shit happens, basically. So um, just to try and like make this a little more concrete, that this is not just storytelling. This is, again, humans pragmatically dealing with the actual nature of reality as it presents itself to us. Um, and I'm jumping, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit here because you mentioned heaven and earth. And I think maybe a good framing for that. Uh, let me read the excerpt first, actually. So, all right, let me read Peterson's excerpt here. He's talking about how the individual, the hero, the knower is serving as like a unit of memory for the culture itself, uh, and help in helping to create these stories or mythological structures that inform individual action over time. So he writes, identifiable individuals serve as the temporary agents of embodied memory for the entire culture at any given locale and time. Nonetheless, the loss of a given individual poses no threat to the knowledge of the culture. This is because language is remembered that is embodied in the behavior of all those who speak. And he, a little further down, he writes, if there are no other adults around, in fact, they are inevitably present by proxy in entertainment, in ritual, drama, literature, and myth. The behavioral patterns that make up our stories might therefore be regarded as stored in our social behavior. This implies that such patterns may be abstracted from that behavior at any time. The collective unconscious is, from this perspective, embodied behavioral wisdom in its most fundamental form. Is the cumulative transmitted consequences of the fact of exploration and culture on action? So, if I can use an analogy here, if we're all running cognitive software, right, the the rationality, language, uh, the logos, the, th the things, the cognitive tools that we think separate us from animals. It's like our software, basically. These mythological structures are like the hardware, right? That we, It's the crystallized consequences of the interplay of our cognitive software over time that we've stored in story. And we use it through imitation to inform our present actions, but then we also reshape it over time, right? Like, you know, action informs mythology, mythology informs action, and the, the cycle basically continues. So, uh, with all that, um, what I would like to say is if you have the individual as a unit of cultural memory, basically, they're, they're sort of functioning as a mediator between, and you, you invoked these terms, heaven and earth. And so if we could say what those are, heaven being like the realm of ideas and or ideals, right? This is like information, data, principles, or action, whatever it may be. And earth would be the actual physical material reality that we inhabit in the present. The individual is mediating between these domains right? And action. That's why Peterson says all of our action is based on belief. There's some belief structure informing our action. 
and then our actions reshape material reality. Um, and so you have this mediator function where it's almost like just as the individual is a unit of cultural memory, we might say a coin or a money is a unit of economic memory. And so you start to look at the individual as an actual, and, and uh, I've talked to Jordan Bush about this. He says people are God's money, basically. It's like we are the medium of exchange between heaven and earth, right? That's why we participate in the creative process. That's why we are made in the image of creation itself or the creator. So um, anyways, I hope some of that is useful to try and like... <laughs> start to see why these things are practically important and we're not just dealing with useless fairy tales here. Um, this was, these were part of the things that came up for me on this intellectual journey. And I'd love to hear your feedback on any of that or where we should go next. Yeah. I mean, starting to tease this out, it's, it's a fantastic framework for starting this out. The whole point of the individual here, right? And this is touching on even some more concepts later in the book, beyond where we're even planning on covering today. One of the biggest points about this book generally that that I'll make is that it's it's beyond a slow burn. It's it's really layering concept upon concept upon concept. And and then in the the very last chapters it, it gets to some real proper theses. Theses. But throughout there are these truths and that's one of the concepts that that dr peterson refers to is that really true things are true at multiple levels of analysis and that's the the title of this chapter basically the three levels of analysis so tying this back a little bit to where what we covered before that there is this thing that people every individual does day to day mediates the world around them Every individual, to a certain extent, is is ah, the star of their own movie. They're, yes. they're living their own life. To a certain extent, they're their own god. Uh-huh. And I, I don't mean that in a, a blasphemous way. I mean that in, in a sense of that to an individual, they're the actor, uh-huh. right? They're the one acting upon the world. And so, so where we get to with, with everything that you've, you've talked about mediating between heaven and earth, right? The explanation of this is that the human memory has been transmitted through these stories. Mm-hmm. So the, the means of explaining this and giving as an example to to children of how to act is done through story. And what's fascinating is it's almost a meta uh, cycle in itself because you, you touched on this, that the the culture and the individual mediate with each other. Well, that's entirely the theme mm-hmm. of the meta stories, mm-hmm. right? That you have some kind of unbearable present, some kind of state that can't be handled, and then some force is able to deal with that and go into the future, either positively or negatively. Mm-hmm. But something has to happen. And uh, a line that that I really liked uh, to come across here was lost the page. Um, uh, 
It was right. While, while you're finding that, I'll just add one comment here that came up yeah. as you were saying that. So just to maybe tie this also back to praxeology, you've got the individual, we said mediating between heaven and earth, but you're also mediating, if I'm looking at, again, through a praxeological lens, between the ideal future and the uneasy present, right? Like you're in a place of felt uneasiness and you're trying to move towards a higher ideal and you're, medi- you're acting, the action is the mediation. How do I take myself from felt uneasiness to ideal future? That is praxeology in a nutshell, right? That is man must act. That is the axiom of action. So well, sorry, and throw that tie in too, but please go ahead. Yeah, no, and well, what I was going to point out here is on page 92, it says, nonetheless, to live, it is necessary to act. So the funny thing is he just, he just gets this. And I mean, we, we don't have to go through the, the entire... Um, next couple of paragraphs or anything but but he he gets it and and the the point here is that the explanation of that yes it's necessary to act so what should we do yes. and this is subconscious right like this isn't stuff that you're constantly thinking about how should i act constantly and and i mean that literally like uh you're not consciously thinking should i breathe you're not right. consciously thinking about the the daily rhythm of living you are stopping at certain points and thinking consciously about what you should do. Mm-hmm. But then what tells you what you should do? Mm. And the point is that the stories give us a blueprint of what to do. Yes. That, that's the thesis here. Yes. That's the, the point. And one of the more contentious things, by the way, I guess for audiences of this show uh, who, who may be uh, getting deeper into kind of this this monetary theory stuff and and things of um, state versus individual that sort of thing. One of the points here is that the state or the culture is something real, is something embodied, and this is explained mythologically. And I th- I think there are cases of the use of the word state where culture maybe should have been used instead mm-hmm. yes because the hard to draw the line between the two exactly but the the there is a little inkling here saying that culture needs to exist that mm-hmm. some kind of cultural memory needs to exist and if it gets lost catastrophe happens yes no it's that's an excellent point a lot of these things bleed over into one another. Um, obviously, we do have to have a bright line between culture and the state because the state is... I mean, the line, I think, is private property. And I think Rothbard has brilliantly uh, elaborated on that in books like The Ethics of Liberty uh, and Anatomy of the State. So um, we, we can leave that there. But yes, agreed. There is this... There's a feedback loop between the individual and culture but then this, the culture and the state have a, a deep integration as well, right? As you may have noticed on the U.S. dollar bill that says, in God we trust, you know, it goes, it goes beyond the cultural into the theological even. The state is sort of dependent on all of these, uh, these layers. And, and Peterson maps some of these out visually in his book as well, where he's saying, you know, you have the substructure kind of the ethical assumptions of the culture and then maybe the state and legal system is sort of based on those 
ethical or moral intuitions. If you are a business owner or manager, you should know these three numbers. 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, which allows you to streamline accounting, financial management, human resources, and more. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days rather than weeks, and to drive down cost. And finally, one, because your business is one of a kind. So with NetSuite, you get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. NetSuite is everything you need all in one place. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash whatismoney. That's netsuite.com slash whatismoney to get your free KPI checklist. Again, netsuite.com slash whatismoney. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, iCoin Technologies. iCoin has released a free software update for all existing wallet holders that includes a secure messaging feature called Chamber. With the Chamber upgrade, you can send text messages with all the security benefits of a cold device. With wallet-to-wallet encrypted messaging, there is zero chance of a message being decrypted by a snooping third party. Chamber's encrypted messages can only be created and read on an iCoin wallet, which means messages are never seen in plain text on a hot device. You can use any messaging platform to send chamber encrypted messages. Even if the messaging channel is compromised, your messages will remain uncrackable. You can now generate and store your message encryption keys on a cold device. This means you become the central authority and your encryption keys are never seen on a network connected device or kept in cloud storage by a third party. So why not protect your private communications like you protect your Bitcoin private keys? Pick up a few iCoin chambers today for friends, family, and coworkers. With the iCoin Chamber, your privacy is built right in. Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code BITCOIN23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. Um, okay. I hope that's useful for people. Again, what I keep trying to do here is well, a couple of things. Tie it back to praxeology and then also sort of emphasize the the indispensability of mythology. Mythology is not this popular modern conception of like, oh yeah, that's what those idiots believed a few hundred or a few thousand years ago, or the fairy tales. It's like, no, you ration human rationality and mythology, I don't think you can have one without the other almost. We needed to bootstrap human cognition through the telling of stories about ourselves over time. And that's what the, the mythology is. And we can't operate absent some guiding story either, right? And this, back to your point about the state, right? There's a reason that we have the Pledge of Allegiance in the United States and we have these histories and we like, you had, there has to be a guiding story so we know what we should do. It's not enough to know that we must act. We also must know how to act and we need some structure to inform that. Um, should we go forward into the actual myths themselves at this point? Yeah, I, I think so. And and to do that, I think we need to introduce the cast of characters first, mm-hmm. uh, and, and then we can get into a concrete example. Perfect. So we have the known, the unknown, and the so-called knower. These are embodied as characters. These are you can call them archetypes. They 
first really came up with or were described like this in Carl Jung, his collective unconscious. But the, for for all intents and purposes, they're characters. Uh-huh. So it's the great mother and the great father. The great mother is the representation of the unknown, the knowable unknown, the potential for creation and destruction. The great father is the embodiment of the known, the explored territory. And it's the embodiment of the culture, just what we've been talking about. I prefer the term culture here, just so we're not confused. I, I, I really don't mean the modern concept of a nation state, but culture yeah. in some sense. There's also a positive and negative aspect to the great father. The positive aspect is order. A society that is relatively free of, for lack of a better term, chaos, where you can, you can know what to expect day to day. That's the positive aspect of order. That's, uh, dare to say it, it's the patriarchy, uh, uh, quite literally. Uh-huh. But the flip side is also the patriarchy. It's yeah. tyranny. Yeah. It's where order goes too far. It's where you have state overreach, right? And so you have the positive and negative aspects of both creation and destruction on the unknown side or the chaos side and order and tyranny on the known side. Yes. Then we have the archetypal son. This is the character representing the knower. This is what the individual stands for, basically. Mm-hmm. Every individual in some sense is this mediator between order and chaos to greater and lesser degrees. And mythologically, the son tends to be the child of the great mother and father of order and chaos. And we'll explore this in the stories, but this generally means that there's a potential for good and evil, depending on the actions. Mm. So the knower can create new order from chaos, or he or she can destroy or reject what isn't understood. So you have the positive and negative aspect there as well. And you basically have the hero and the adversary or the good guy and the bad guy. Those are the different aspects of that character. Then finally, outside of that is the dragon of chaos. Sits outside. It's the representation of the true unknown like we discussed. Mm -hmm. And it's the unknown that doesn't have a name. Mm -hmm. But generally, generally, this dragon of chaos is actually somewhere. And there are stories that we'll get into where this dragon of chaos is a character and plays a role. And 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 when I say plays a role, it actually is that it, it indicates something about the other characters, so-called, the things that are possible by these various aspects. So there's a there's a fantastic image uh that that shows these split up if you're following along it's page 106 and it's just this division into the positive and negative aspects of all all of these characters basically with the dragon of chaos sitting outside there's no positive or negative there it's both it's nothing all at the same time Uh, so those are the characters um anything you want to comment before we yeah i just read one brief excerpt here and that uh, just again thinking about this through sort of an economics lens, the archetypal son who is the individual 
uh, or is the hero, right? It's the, 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 the protagonist of the sto- these stories typically. Um, through an economic lens, I would say this is the entrepreneur, right? This is the person that's facing the uncertainty of the future and converting it into something useful in the present. And so I'll read one excerpt here from Peterson on page 91. He writes, the actions of the hero constitute an antidote to the deadly forces of chaos and to the tyranny of order. The hero creates order from chaos and reconstructs that order when necessary. His actions simultaneously ensure that novelty remains tolerable and that security remains flexible. So we have the chaos is threatening, but it's also where all the novelty and new stuff lives, right? New discoveries, new resources, etc., the known territory is useful in that it protects us. Um, but if it becomes too rigid, too inflexible, and can't adapt to the unknown, then it becomes tyrannical and oppressive. And the individual that constitutes uh, these hierarchies must constantly be mediating between these two domains, right? We need structure, but we also need adaptivity at the edges. So you need conservatism at the core and liberality at the edges, something like that. Um, and so I just wanted to tie that into what well, is, well, that is exactly what entrepreneurs are doing, right? They're saying, here's the world. <laughs> uh, a lot of problems have been solved, but there's a lot of problems that either haven't been solved, uh, better, faster, cheaper, or maybe there's other things that we haven't figured out how to do like space travel or, you know, something that hasn't been invented yet. And then they go into the world, they face the unknown and they attempt to solve those problems profitably. And when they do it successfully, well, you get a, a like a lockstep advancement in human civilization, right? We invent the car or the plane or the wheel or whatever the thing is, the steam engine, the combustion engine, et cetera, et cetera. Then that's, that's like newly explored territory, right? We've gained new knowledge that then benefits, as long as we don't forget it, it benefits everyone everywhere forever. So... That's just the one connection I wanted to, to draw there. It's a fantastic point. And let's hold that for later too, because once we get through this story, I, I think there'll be some more commented parallel in that regard. So shall we dive in? Yes. Okay. So we're going to be talking about the Enuma Elish and the byline here that the Peterson included was, it's a comprehensive exemplar of narrative categorization. And what that broadly means is it it shows these characters in action. And so this this story isn't the oldest in the world. It's from about the year 650 BC is, is at least where the, the main version that we have comes from. It's most likely got some pretty old uh, origins, but but for example, the uh, biblical uh, creation story is is older mm-hmm. uh, and we can we can get into uh, some of why we know that, not not just that that uh, uh, it records back five thousand years or something like that. There there are other reasons for that, but this story tells of all the main characters we've been talking about and shows what they all do, and so it's fantastic. A side point just before we get started about that creation myths generally, they're not literal, and and. We just really have to to hammer that part home here because it's not like 
any of these things are saying something scientific. It's not like if the world in the in the, some creation story that the world is formed from an egg laid by a duck in the middle of the ocean. That's mm-hmm. not meant literally. Yeah. It's meant figuratively. Yes. And these motifs that are throughout the world. This is this is one of the the parts that I, I really enjoy about the mythology piece of it is that every individual instance, yes. right? You can get something unique out of that, but it's also definitely got parallels <clears throat> throughout the world. And Mircea Eliade's uh, history of religious ideas is is by far the most cited uh, source here, quoted mm-hmm. uh, in this upcoming section, uh, and it is great to show the comparison of of all these things. So just to get that out of the way here, that these things aren't literal, and it's also not it's it's also to imply that the uh, for example the biblical creation story. It, now, if, if, for anyone who believes that, great. Like, and 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 that's. That's not to say that any any belief here is is wrong if, if there are other reasons for it. But it's also to say that maybe if you don't believe that, you could look at this story and get something out of it. That's right. That's what clicked for me was when yes. Ethan was telling the Genesis story. That's what clicked. Yes. Was that maybe I didn't believe that stuff literally, but I, I did, after his explanation, take it much more seriously. Right. You might even have an aversion to it, as I did. When I was young, like I thought, oh, what, what, 15 years old? Oh, religion is fairy tales for adults. I get it. Like that's what this all means. And then almost have an aversion to it. But when you start seeing these recurrent themes in multiple religions and wisdom traditions across history, I think it starts to tell you that, oh, wait, maybe there's something else here, right? There's, there's some, again, you're looking at it through, when different, what is it? What all true maps must align. So when you have, find these different maps that are all pointing in the same direction, there's something to it, right? It indicates that there's something deeper here. And just to quote one excerpt from Peterson, to your point, he writes, a good story has a universal quality, which means that it speaks a language we all understand. Any universally comprehensible language must have universal reference And this means that a good story must speak to us about those aspects of experience that we all share. So one of the, probably the most difficult thing in really generating a useful mythology is that it needs to be able to speak to people at all levels, right? The the peasant that can barely, maybe is not even literate and can only hear the spoken story. It also needs to be able to speak to the intellectual and the scholar. So when you use these metaphors, like the duck laying the egg in the middle of the ocean is the genesis of the universe. Like that's the purpose of it. It's to compress that narrative into something that's relatable to people at all levels of experience. Absolutely. And, and so to kind of dive in now, we can start to see where this all ties in. And I I guess one last point pulling off of this is that, is that, uh, one one last point he makes here is that there is a clear psychological precedent for the philosophy of the early Jews and later Christians in the Mesopotamian and Egyptian schools here, and and there's an implication that these are these are clearly polytheistic stories. They they have multiple gods and characters and all this, but what we're pointing towards is that uh, psychologically they're getting at some of the same things, and so they they aim towards. Um, well, actually, monotheism, and so that's that's just uh, another point before we really dive in. But uh, 
One of my highest health priorities is keeping my brain in top shape. To take care of my brain power, I do many things, such as striving to read, write, exercise, and meditate daily. One of the latest tools in my brain power toolkit is MindLab Pro. MindLab Pro is a nootropic supplement that is scientifically proven to enhance your brain power. When I take MindLab Pro, my mind feels like it has a better grip on the world, my thinking is more lucid, and the articulation of my speech is much more clear. MindLab Pro has been tested in rigorous, double-blind, placebo-controlled human trials and has been proven to enhance brain power for users in every age group. MindLab Pro is an advanced formulation of 11 nootropic ingredients and is backed by research from 1,473 human trials conducted over a period of 32 years. So if you're looking to start enhancing your brain power, MindLab Pro is an excellent solution. Go to mindlabpro.com slash breedlove to start enhancing your brain power today. Again, that's mindlabpro.com slash breedlove. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a crowdfunding platform for paying medical expenses in lieu of an insurance policy. CrowdHealth recently announced that it is integrating lightning payments with Breeze's Lightning SDK. In the United States, we spend more than twice the average amount of money on healthcare than other developed nations. Medical costs are one of the leading causes of bankruptcy in the United States, and it is not a secret that the medical system in the U.S. has many, many issues. The CrowdHealth model is based on offering an alternative to the conventional insurance policy at a cheaper price point. For a monthly membership fee of $50, CrowdHealth will negotiate medical bills to get the cheapest price possible, help locate healthcare providers, offer access to their member crowdfunding service, and more. Prior to the Breeze integration, CrowdHealth had been functioning over traditional fiat payment routes, which introduced unnecessary transaction fees and delays in settlement. By integrating Lightning payments into the CrowdHealth business model, payments between members can now be made with near-zero fees and with final settlement occurring in mere seconds. So go to joincrowdhealth.com breedlove today to sign up. One last point. Sorry, you keep having to add little things here, but there's just so much. Um, Metaphors. Uh, another way to, I think, to conceive of mythology is as a collection of metaphors. And Peterson, we mentioned this earlier, right? That wisdom is sort of that which is unexplorable. We can't capture it in explicit propositional knowledge. And then there's explicit knowledge, right? The explored territory. Peterson writes this, Metaphors mediate between our procedural wisdom and our explicit knowledge. They constitute the imagistic declarative point of transition between the act and the word. So there's a great book on this too called Metaphors We Live By, uh, who he cites here as well, the author Lakoff. Um, basically all language arises from our physical engagement with the world. Right when we when we invoke a word like understand, that actually means to stand beneath to gain a deeper perspective. When you say something like "I ran in the race," you're invoking a container metaphor. Right, you you weren't actually in a race; you participated in a race. So when if you read that book, metaphors you live by, you start to see everything. All of our phrases, all of our words, they have this metaphorical component, and it's meant to bridge our physical. Our experience of physically engaging reality with our ways of thinking and communicating about it. So I just wanted to hit on that, that the metaphor is so fundamental to this entire 
um, endeavor of both constructing mythology, but also thinking and speaking about experience itself. You know, kind of stuck with it. Yeah. The, this way of thinking, we can't get out of it. We, we can't take language. You just did a container metaphor right there. We can't get out of it. Right. You yeah. can't escape the container of metaphor. <laughs> no, no. And, and we can't take language and completely, so I'm going to use metaphors, tear yeah. it apart, build it again. We can't yes. do it. We can't right. do it. Right. Uh, it, it, it wouldn't be adopted. First of all, it would be like, uh, like if someone uh, said by, uh, by decree that you must use this money. Huh. That's right. I, That's right. And if it, to, uh, but one finer point. So we said earlier, Socrates, the beginning of wisdom is the definition of terms. If you look at the etymological root of metaphor, it means something like carry over. So we're trying to carry over our physical embodied experience, as Peterson calls our procedural wisdom. And we're trying to uh, map it, trying to make it explored territory, right? We're trying to contain it in explicit knowledge. You can never contain the whole thing, but through these different metaphors of engaging the world, uh, you get a richer picture of of reality and history and what it's like to be human, basically. Yeah, it's awesome. And well, I, I think it just now it leads us straight into the story. Let I, I think we should we should yeah. just go through it. Uh any detours, uh let's go. But uh, I think a lot of this will become clear with just this simple telling and I'm not going to go word for word here check out the book the section on this for the nitty-gritty details but I'm focusing on the important parts here so you're okay. starting on, on page 108 is that where you're starting uh we've got 108 but uh, I'm I'm jumping to 111 basically 111. okay it actually starts pretty much um so we have the deities Apsu and Tiamat. So Apsu is the great father, the known. Tiamat is chaos, the unknown, male and female. Apsu, male, Tiamat, female. So Apsu served as the begetter of heaven and earth prior to their identification as such. Tiamat was she who gave birth to them all, his consort. And they initially existed indistinguishably from one another. So this is a reference to the the pre-cosmogonic chaos. Basically, the meta concept here that is in loads of these myths is that the two main characters, one of order, one of chaos, came from this pre-cosmogonic chaos, the Ouroboros. And they had a pre-cosmogonic egg inhabited by Tiamat and Absu, which gave rise to the initial world of gods. So just a quick touch on the egg. This this is a metaphor from countless uh, civilizations across language groups, uh, all across uh, basically Asia, the near the Near East kind of thing. And it, it, it kind of it's it's like a chicken and egg. You have a yolk that's going to produce something, right? And so so that's where the metaphor comes from. Uh, it's just more like this is probably unfamiliar to a lot of listeners here, but it's it's really quite common in in mythology here so the the main point here now is that you have a, a world that is is really indistinguishable it's just these main characters order chaos there isn't much uh, character or personality to them yet 
But that's when we get into these so-called elder gods. And this is what's asserted here is that they're a metaphor for uh, basically humanity left to its own devices or, or human nature or human without culture, essentially. It's, it's humanity before history, something like that. So the idea that there might have been some generations far in the past that are unknowable and whatever their actions were, um, it's, it's humanity before the flood as well, something like that. Not, a, not an exact parallel, but it's, yeah, it can be similar here. Mm-hmm. So the, the point here is that um, humanity is kind of undifferentiated. There, there aren't individual characters yet. They, they, they have names. They, they've given names to some of these characters, but none of them are acting as individuals yet in a mythological sense. So the original children of Tiamat and Absu, these elder gods, well, they decide to, at one point, um, uh, okay, here, here's a good, good excerpt. The elder gods serve merely to reproduce and to noisily act. Their incessant racket and movement upsets the divine parents and disturbs the inner parts of Tiamat. So Tiamat and Absu conspire to devour their children. In other words, it's, it's a flood myth. It's already uh, a flood myth. It's the, the world is going to be served with a flood to, to wipe it clean, something like that. So one of the elder gods named Ea, E-A, uh, catches wind of the, the parents' plot and decides to just slay his father, kill Apsu. Okay, so this sounds, first of all, it sounds simple. Uh, so he just decides to go do it. There's a much more detail here. But this has huge implications. So Absu, as the embodiment of the known, is the embodiment of the cultural memory. Consciously deciding to slay the cultural memory is what this story describes. Mm. It's a culture where the younger generation has decided to do away with its entire cultural past. Mm-hmm. Nothing can be learned from that. And even though there is some expectation of something positive coming out of this, right? Uh, all it serves to do is let in the unknown, mm-hmm. let in chaos. So Tiamat is angry, the symbol of the unknown. She's angry and she creates monsters to go and invade the world of the Mm. gods. So this brief interaction here is all to describe a state where the human order, sorry, the, the, the existing order has been destroyed, right? And instead of that creating some kind of freedom where everything is going to just work out, it creates this vacuum, this unknown. And parallels are easy to find. Uh, The first thing that came to my mind is Libya after 2011. Mm -hmm. It's like, create a power vacuum and watch what happens, basically. Disaster. Right. And 
so th- this stage is is really to put forth a, a proper catastrophe, a mythological <clears throat> catastrophe. It's it's representing catastrophe as a thing in itself. Right. So this is this is what happens when when order gets destroyed. You know what came right. up for me as you were saying that is just the modern cultural degradation we're seeing across the West, right? This woke mind virus has people, you know, destroying statues and um, claiming, you know, if you go deep enough in the the postmodernist sort of relativistic rabbit hole, it's two plus two equals five, right? Like you're dispensing with mathematical knowledge, um, saying everything is just a power game. And so this, this idea of it's too extreme, right? This idea of completely slaying all cultural order, you've removed all barriers to chaos, right? Again, you don't want to overcorrect either way. You don't want an overly rigid structure that becomes ossified and tyrannical, but you also don't want to completely remove the structure where you're just back in pure chaos. Like you, you, we have to have a, a structure that is flexible when it needs to be flexible and rigid when it needs to be rigid, right? Cont- um, contingent on the circumstances, something like that. And um, this, I guess, portion of the myth is describing what happens when you completely rip out the structure. You've just removed all the barriers to chaos. Exactly. And then the solution is cue the hero, Marduk. So Marduk is characterized by the metaphoric associates of consciousness. He has exaggerated sensory capabilities. His words are characterized by creative and destructive power. He is the sun god above all, which means that he is assimilated to, or more accurately, occupies this, I'm quoting here, by the way, occupies the same categorical space as sight, vision, illumination, enlightenment, dawn, the elimination of darkness, and the death of the night. That's every sun god, by the way. Every sun god mm. has these same features. It's why it's so widespread prior to the advent of monotheism, basically. It's 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 so so powerful. And he's got so many of these characteristics. I think somewhere else he it also mentions the uh, eyes around his head. Uh, it might be in one of the actual um, passages. But the the main thing here is that this hero is now being created, and, and he's actually the... It's not overly important, but he's the son. Yeah. Son of the guy who who killed Absu. Um, so th- there's something to that. It's 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 uh, an implication that you, you need a future generation to fix yeah. the problems of the past, basically. Right. Um, but that's a detail. Uh, a big thing about that that I've found when studying these stories is that all of these details are intentional and saying something yes otherwise they wouldn't have survived but it doesn't necessarily mean that we should focus on every single one of them right well well, i would say it's another aspect of being a mediator right when you're your progeny, right? Your offspring—they're mediating the next generation, right? That you—you're the father. You're the old. That what does Peterson often say? That every culture is built on the corpse of the father. It's like the the father is yesterday's hero, right? He went out, and explored new territory, revivified the structure, 
but now he has to sort of get out of the way and let his children go out and explore further territory. And so the, um, it is important, right? This is like, this is the same theme that's in Christianity where we have the father and the son. Um, again, another one of those parallels between different mythologies that's, that's telling, right? There's a reason that it's there. It's not just arbitrary. Exactly. Exactly. And, and so to, to bring this forward a, a little bit, basically, and then there's, there's some, some great other details and some, some diagrams of, of what's happening basically. But the, the main thing is there's a threat to the world of the elder gods in quotes, uh, the world of humanity as it existed before Marduk, before this big catastrophe, something like that. And basically the elder gods say to, well, for, first of all, actually this Ea, the character who destroyed order, first of all, he tries to defeat the monsters of Tiamat, the monsters of chaos. He tries to do it and he, he fails. He can't. So then the elder gods collectively ask Marduk to come and be the hero and attempt to bring order to the world. And he says that, and I'm trying to get a quote, but okay. Um, basically what, what happens here is he says, yes, I will do it. I will go, uh, take up the mantle and go fight against these monsters that are attacking the world. But only if you'll make me king God, number one God, top God. And they agree. The gods agree to subordinate themselves to the top god. The god that is synonymous with the word, synonymous, like he speaks magic words, they say that here. And it's an example of gods organizing themselves hierarchically, which is a precursor to monotheism. If the gods start to gods the conceptualizations that go into the gods start to recognize that there is something that lives on top, then it all trickles down and everything feeds into that one concept, which is the individual, the hero. So to bring this all to something of an end here, Marduk is made the chief god if he can defeat Tiamat. And well, he does it. There's a whole thing uh, of, of how he does this, but he, he defeats the, um, the Tiamat. He, he fills Tiamat with an evil wind. Um, and, and he then fully defeats her and constructs the heavenly order, fashioning the year, defining the 12 sign Zodiac, determining the movement of the stars, the planets, the moon. Um, and he creates man out of the top monster. So there's, there's some, again, with the literalness of this, there's some concept of people that are called the elder gods. And then real man comes after that, uh, a parallel to flood myths everywhere, basically. And those are fun on their own. But the, the main thing is he does the thing. He defeats the forces of chaos and then he constructs order out of it, constructs a new order. It's, it's the, um, 
there's a there's an idea that humanity was fascinated with the stars and the planets and the movements and all this because this is all they had to do at night basically and um lots of other reasons for it it was good for predicting the year but putting order into the the heavens that, that's a big thing mythologically and it's the nature of the eternal relationship between the unknowable source of all things the gods who rule human life and the subject or process who constructs determinate experience through voluntary encounter with the unknown that's a quote from page 123 it's it's excellent um and uh, again describing marduk uh, this is coming secondhand from peterson i've just heard him say this that he was a deity that had eyes all around his head right and so peterson associated this with attention being at the hierarchy at the pinnacle of the hierarchy of value, right? That no matter where you are, you know, the gods representing different, let's say motivational forces, but what should be the highest God? What should be, what should, um, be the highest at the highest echelon in the hierarchy of value? Well, it's attention, right? It's like, pay attention, like, Hey, constantly pay attention. Is it too rigid? Is it too adaptive? Do we need to change? Like the constant, the, the constant, assessing and reassessing of your position um, and the position of others and the actions of others, like this seems to be the the primary thing. There's something very special about attention. And again, what do we do with attention? We pay attention, right? This is the metaphor we use. And so again, there's this deep structural relationship with mediation or, or language or money. Like it's, it's, we even, Again, we pay attention. That's the metaphor we invoke when we talk about how we act with attention. Um, and what does Marduk do? Marduk slices and dices chaos into these pieces and then builds the world out of her. So I think this is relating to the the discriminating and naming faculty traditionally associated with rationality, right? Like we're decomposing and discerning the continuum of chaos into discrete parts and pieces and naming them, communicating about them. And this is the emergence of social order, right? We're, 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 we're naming it. We're converting all of this unknown territory into something that is known, discriminable, manageable, communicable, and we build an order out of it, right? Well, this mapping the the paths of the stars, you know, that's useful in agriculture. It's useful in navigation. It's useful in et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so this, I think, yeah, that's why this is a creation myth. It's describing this fundamental primordial act of converting, um, you know, pure chaos or something that appears to be pure chaos, let's say, into something that is manageable, measurable, um, something we can grapple with. Whereas if you don't have the naming conventions and you don't have, uh, the discrimination of objects, then you can't contend with it. Something like that. Then this, this is what makes us human, right? That we can think and talk about and label things and then transmit that knowledge over time. And then we build civilization up layer by layer uh, of of these learnings, basically. Well, and the thing I like to latch on there is that the conceptual 
character of Tiamat, this chaos, there was the potential for destruction there too, right? So the hero stood at the boundary of creation and destruction. And the hero chose creation. The hero was able to, out of those two possibilities, create, not destroy, or at least not let destruction come out here. Nature is naturally nature. Nature is dis- destructive by nature. It's a tautology, but it 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 consumes everything. Everything that humanity does, it's it's uh, entropy. Uh, everything that humanity tries to put up. All we have from ancient civilizations are really gigantic stone monuments. Everything else gets absorbed. There's even the like the amount of time they would take for something metal to get completely absorbed is is in the hundreds of years, not even thousands, right? And so that's why we only have the the biggest and largest traces of of humanity there, right? And but the 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 point here is that. Uh, the the very point of this, the end of the story, is that Marduk is placed at the head of the gods, is given all the rewards. And so to tie this back to the entrepreneur thing here, is that mythologically, there is a reward for success. The, and that reward is that everyone else who sees the example and who reaps the benefits subordinates to that person. I'm not commenting on the political, should this, a certain system be done here or not. I'm saying mythologically, that's what it means. And you can take that literally in the sense that a person who embodies this should go do, do their thing, be empowered to go improve humanity, create order out of chaos, create something out of the unknown that person should be rewarded for that. Morally, that's what this is saying, I think. But also on another level here, it's saying that the process that does this, the individuals that embody the spirit of Marduk should be the ones we listen to. The people who accomplish, who take chaos and create something out of it. Right. Those are the people, the characters, to put at the pinnacle yes. of culture, of society. That's what this is saying. That's an excellent point, and it's where I wanted to go, I think maybe in closing for today, but to this very point. Uh, I'll, I'll read the excerpt first, and then I'll try to provide some commentary here. Um Peterson writes on page 100, in the Enuma Elish, for example, the oldest written creation myth we possess, the Mesopotamian hero deity Marduk bases the aquatic female dragon Tiamat, which is the mother of all things, including Marduk himself, cuts her up and creates the world from her pieces. The god Marduk serves explicitly as exemplar for the Mesopotamian emperor, whose job is to ensure that the cosmos exists and remains stable and as a consequence of his proper moral behavior, defined by his imitation of Marduk. In the Judeo-Christian tradition, it is the Logos, the word of God, that creates order from chaos, and it is in the image of the Logos that man, let us make man in our image after our likeness, Genesis 1.26, is created. This idea has clear additional precedence in early and late Egyptian cosmology, as we shall see. 
In the Far East, similarly, the cosmos is imagined as compared as composed of the interplay between yang and yen, chaos and order. That is to say, unknown or unexplored territory and known or explored territory. Tao, from the Eastern perspective, is the pattern of behavior that mediates between them, analogous to Enil, Marduk, and the Logos, constantly generating, destroying, and regenerating the universe. For the Eastern individual, life in Tao is the highest good, the way and meaning, the goal toward which all other goals must remain subordinate. So, Again, just the importance, you know, basically the Tao, the Logos, the, which is the word, you know, the word as a medium of exchange of human conception, obviously money, medium of exchange of human action, like this, these mediating agents or structures seem to be very primary in this interplay of constantly navigating between too much order and too much chaos, right? You have to have kind of a little bit of both. And to have a little bit of both in the right amount at the right time, you need a constant uh, vigilant mediation process, a mediator. And so, and to your point about people being at the top of hierarchies in society, like who should we put at that pinnacle and then imitate that was the point. This is where it ties into mythology, actually. It's like, it's not only do we need, not only can we imitate people that are alive and acting in the world, but we can also imitate these mythological figures, right? It, what does it say in this piece? The imitation of Marduk is considered proper moral action for the emperor. So the purpose of Marduk as a mythological deity was to serve as a role model for the person who's the highest in the hierarchy. And the person that's highest in the hierarchy's purpose is to be a role model for everyone lower in the hierarchy. So it's about, a, what are we trying to do? Crystallize the proper patterns of moral action specific to a time and place and transmit them across time, not just propositionally, but procedurally, right? Through imitation. And that's where these stories are are indispensable, I think, in my opinion. Yeah, and the amazing thing here too is that nowhere does any of this say you have to do this. Nowhere is this saying you have to try to embody the character of the hero. The culture doesn't have to put this at the top of its hierarchy. But what happens if you don't? That's the rhetorical right. question yeah. that I think we can answer with today's society as the example. Yes. And maybe this is a blueprint for getting back to a state of the world that is more creative, more in control, and allows individuals who are willing to embody the spirit of the hero to lead and to bring humanity with them. I think that is a great place to put a button on it. Um, hopefully people are starting to get a sense of just how deep and fascinating and important these stories are. And, uh, I look forward to our next conversation. Likewise, Robert. Thanks. Thanks for having me.